Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Hey, Dr. Jana, how are you? I am good. I'm good. Dr. Jana, welcome to episode number 59 of the Science Sex Podcast. It's good to be here again. 59 episodes. Is this mm-hmm. the longest term relationship you've ever had? Well, <laughs> what's an episode in relationship terms? I guess uh, one episode, which is an hour, I would say a month. So each one will be a month. I was married for like seven years. Oh, okay. All right, but since your, <laughs> since your marriage, has this been the longest relationship? Or how about this, the most fruitful relationship you've ever fruitful. had? <laughs> fruitful. Yes, it's definitely the most fruitful. I mean, you're allowed to lie to me every once in a while and say, yes, this is the most amazing relationship I've had since my marriage. But you are very busy. Outside of your dating world, mm-hmm. you're always spreading the love of open love and spreading sex positivity to the people. <laughs> uh, and you have something going on the day after this podcast drops, right? Yes, and it's in Boston. Oh, it's cool. It's actually in Boston, yeah. I haven't been to Boston in a while, and I'm giving a talk there at the Good Vibrations store in Brookline. And that's March 27th. That's March 27th, yes. And it's going to be on navigating difficult emotions when it comes to consensual non-monogamy. So things like jealousy falling in love when you don't necessarily want to fall in love or when your partner doesn't really want you to fall in love with other people and so on and then the following day i'm actually at emerson college so you're doing a whole tour i'm doing a little mini tour (laughs) yes of boston i'm gonna do a workshop on pleasure and consent there for their students well dr john enjoy your stay up in boston i will miss you Thank you. I'm not going to be gone for that long. Don't worry about it. I'll be back. Can you text me when you're up there to make sure you got there okay? No. No? No. You don't have a relationship with somebody like that? Like, hey, I landed here. Let me know how you're doing. Funny you should ask. I'm actually, that's a pet peeve of mine. I hate doing that. Oh. I had, and I think it comes from growing up uh, with, with a dad who didn't really do that, who didn't oh. ask me to do those kinds of things. Right. And so I never learned to do that. And now when people tell me, text me and let me know you got home okay, I'm like, no. Wow. And I, I, it's especially triggering if it's some random new people that I just met or something. And they're like, I'm like, who are you? You'll actually to, call them out and say like, no. Yeah, I'm I, I'll, 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 I'll usually say, no, I probably won't. I'm <laughs> sure I'm going to get home safe and sound. Oh, yeah. Man. Yeah. I, is, that, bro- is they, that weird? Yes. They broke really? the mold with you. That's people just kindness. <laughs> it's like human kindness. It's like if someone says good no, morning to you, you're going to say good morning back. It's just sort of that same that's, nicety. It's like kind of overprotective and paternalistic as if I can't get home safe on my own without someone checking in on me. That that feels stocky. All right. We, we might have to, to do me. research on that. <laughs> no, seriously. You, you don't think that's, I, that's stocky and weird? No, I think it's sweet. I think it's. You think it's sweet? It's, it's just. Well, I mean, me coming from a loving family, where <laughs> you, if you went out or late or went mm-hmm. on a trip, you would call and say. To this day, if I go to visit my mom who lives in mm-hmm. South Jersey, and I and, and I, you know, I go visit her, which is a couple hours away, then I come home. If I don't contact her and tell her that I've gotten home okay, she'll call me up frantic and be like, "Joe, are you okay? I didn't get a call from but you." But like every single time you leave your house, you could potentially not make it That's back, true. and yeah. you don't call and text people every single time. So why this one time that you're with them? Like it doesn't. It makes no sense to me. It feels like this fake, weird overprotectiveness. But I will say, wouldn't isn't it a sort of a pleasantry where it's easy to handle? Like you basically have saved someone who says to you, hey, Jana, it was nice seeing you. Have You know, when you get home, text me. How easy is it for you to just be like, hey, I'm here. Thanks again for the good time but or something it's like not, that. But it's not about how easy or difficult it is. It's about what that behavior communicates. Okay. I have this not just a visceral reaction, which you're probably I, seeing I'm right feeling now. It, yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling it, feeling <laughs> but it, yeah. I, I have a an intellectual kind of rejection of that as a as a as a norm, yeah. as something that you should or that something is that is nice. I honestly think that that's not a nice thing. Huh. <laughs> and and if people think it's nice, it comes from this benevolent paternalistic value of I need to keep an eye on you in some way, or you can't yeah. make it home safe. Is it possible that you're reading too much into that, that maybe it's just the person wanting to make sure you got home okay? Yeah, uh, probably. Okay. But I, uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that they actively think, oh, I need to take yeah. special care of this person because yeah. they, they can't take care of themselves. Yeah. I just, it's just the basis of that behavior is something that I, I disagree with right. and where it comes from and what it indicates. And I also think it's pointless. It's like pretty pointless. 
if I don't let them know every single other time I leave my house or go back to my house, then how is this one time going to help? I, I don't. I'm sorry, but aren't Makes basic no sense. aren't basic manners? That's not pointless? manners. It's a. It's, so that's not manners. It's sort of like no, a manner. No, that's so, not a manner. So if someone just opened a door for you, you wouldn't thank them. Uh, yeah, that's that's fine. So how hard yeah. is it? To say, it's basically the same thing. It's but that, saying, but that is you. actively helpful. That if someone opens the door, they are actively sort of uh, preventing you from having to open the door. However, that. But this is not something. This is not helping anyone. All right. Well, ta- and it's a- and it's asking me to do work, to text them. Oh my god. To I- let them know that I got home safe. No, I'll let I'll text to let them know I had a great time with them. Yeah. That I'm very happy to let them know. There is no mistaking there's only one Dr. Jean on this planet. There cannot be another person like you. Uh, and, and, and and even though you are kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, crazy when it comes to this subject matter, you are very knowledgeable when it comes to sex and sex science. So I have a couple questions I want to read to you that we got from the interwebs. Okay. okay. But before we do that, can you tell us who we're going to talk to today? Oh, yeah. We're going to talk to a good friend of mine, actually, Dr. Shana Sparling, who's coming to us from Ryerson University in Toronto. And she is actually in town Mm -hmm. in New York and is going to join us in the studio. And we're going to talk about her research on when and how people make risky sexual health decisions, like when they think they should be or shouldn't be using a condom or when they perceive somebody to be more risky and therefore needing a condom with that person versus less risky. Okay. Uh, it's some really interesting research, yeah. That does sound fun. So we uh, we like to interact with our audience, and uh, we do have an Instagram page, Twitter, all that. And, of course, we have the science6podcast.com website where you can reach out to us. But a couple questions I want to throw at you that we got. This was a DM on Instagram, Dr. Jana. Have you come by any research about poly families with children? I've tried to do my own research, but haven't been able to do much. So, you know, we talk about open relationships and polyamory a lot, but so how do you deal with polyamory and children? That's actually a very easy question to answer. Research on poly families with children is very limited, but it's not non-existent. And there is only pretty much only one person out there who's done any research on this. And her name is Dr. Elizabeth Sheff. Okay. And she has a book called The Polyamorous Next Door, which is an excellent read on poly families in the U.S., many of whom were are raising children. So what uh, Chef did is kind of traveled around the U.S. and interviewed a bunch of different poly families, specifically poly. So we've talked about the differences between yeah. poly and swinger and whatnot. And the poly folks are those who have these multiple long-term romantic relationships with more than one person at the time. And many of them do raise kids at various ages. And so she did a lot of interviews with the parents, did interviews with the kids, and wrote a couple of articles that were published in the academic literature, but also published an entire book on the topic. So I highly recommend reading that book. Great. All right. Another question. This is actually a comment on one of our Instagram posts. It's about building in-person sex positive kink connections in smaller cities or more conservative communities. Now, we've talked mm. about this several times, how in, you know, obviously New York City, Los Angeles, major cities, you can find a sex-positive community. But if you don't live in one of these major cities that have these communities, what do you do? How do you build what one? What do you do? Yeah. That's a great question. And it's important. It's so important to have community, especially when you have a sexuality or sexual interests that are outside the norm and that you might feel like you're being shamed for or rejected and ostracized for having the sexual desires and interests that you do, it is absolutely critical for your mental health and psychological well-being and physical health and and just fun in yeah. general to be able to have like-minded folks who do accept you for who you are. So it's a really important thing to do. And it is a possible thing to do. Obviously, you don't have the options, the variety of people available that someone in larger cities has, but there are kinky people and sex-positive people everywhere. So what I would suggest is going online first. If you don't have anybody who you know already, you might have some people who you know that who are sex positive or or kinky and you might start there but if you don't know absolutely anybody then i would say go online go on fetlife for example fetlife.com which is a big kink uh social platform go on some of the dating sites that allow for kinky and sex positive folks like okay cupid for example has a pretty elaborate way of allowing people to identify as poly and kinky and all that so you might look for people in your area who are identifying as that and even if they're not 
someone who you are interested in sexually or romantically pursuing, you could message them on there and start conversations with them. Same with FetLife. And FetLife actually isn't a dating site at all. It is much more about creating community. So go on FetLife, find the people in your general area, and there might already be some events. FetLife is a place where people will post events that are okay. happening. And so... If, if there's something that exists already, you are going to find that. And if not, you're going to find individual people. And then you can create. You can start creating community. The easiest way to do that is, you know, you find a few of these people and then you do a munch. What's called a munch? A munch. Yes. What is <laughs> I've heard of brunch. What is munch? You haven't heard of a munch? No. So a munch is often used in the kink communities, less so, but sometimes in the general sex positive community. And it's basically a non-sexual gathering of people with different or, or alternative sexualities. And it happens somewhere that is very public. Oh, okay. It might be at a restaurant, might be at a bar. And it's just, it's just a social gathering where you get some food or get some drinks and get to know these people. And so you can post that that on FetLife, say on you know Wednesday at 5 p.m. We're going to meet at the local whatever Olive Garden, yeah, Olive Garden, yeah. <laughs> or, or, a, or a bar, depending yeah. on what you want to do. And then some people might show up. And in the beginning, you might only get two or three yeah. folks. And then over time, it will probably grow because even if it's a small town, even if it's a conservative town, there are kinky people. Mm-hmm. There are people who need that. So I highly encourage people to start those kinds of things. And it can be very on the down low if you need to be on the down low. So by all means, some of these communities can be pretty harsh when it comes to judging people's sexualities. So don't be more open than than you feel is safe. Maybe use an alias of some sort. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. On on FetLife, you can use an alias. And even even with people that you meet in person, people have scene names, for example. So you can use a scene, like a kink scene name or you don't have to use your real name even uh, if you if you don't feel comfortable with that. But it's it's so important to do that. So I highly encourage everyone. It almost sounds like you described a uh, garden. You find this little patch of grass or dirt, and then you have to just water it and plant seeds. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it'll grow, which is kind of, you know, yeah. kind of way to look at it. And, of course, the Internet, has, as many people think, there's a lot of negativity on there. The ability to create a community on the Internet and then bring it to IRL, as kids say, mm-hmm. in real life – is a big thing. So that's that's actually a great great answer to that question, Absolutely. Dr. Jana. All right, we don't have any more time for any more questions, Dr. John. So, but if you do have any questions for John, because as you can see, she's she's smart. She can answer those questions. Oh, yeah. Like right off the top of your head, she answered that. But uh, you know, hit us up, uh, hit us up on the uh, website sciencesexpodcast.com or on any of our social media outlets. We'll be more than happy to interact with you. And if you want to keep anything private, just go ahead and say, hey, listen, I got this private question, and we'll get back to you. So let's continue with episode number 59 of The Science Sex and Dr. Shana Sparling. Tell us about her, Dr. Jana. Yeah, I'm super excited to have Dr. Shana Sparling with us. She is a postdoctoral research fellow based at Ryerson University in Toronto, and she is the national team manager for the ENGAGE study, a multi-site national study on the sexual health of gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. She holds a PhD in applied social psych with a focus in community psychology and health psychology. And her research focuses on sexual health decision-making and condom negotiation, specifically researching the factors that can affect these two processes, including sexual arousal, relationship motivation, interpersonal power, and partner familiarity. And that's exactly what we have her on the show here today to talk to us about, what and how do people make decisions about using or not using condoms with sexual partners? So, Dr. Shina Sparling, welcome to the Science of Sex podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Shina, what are you doing in New York? I'm tagging along with my partner. He's here on a conference. Mm. And uh, and I was like, I'm coming along. I mean, yeah, why wouldn't you tag along <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to a conference in New York City? Yeah, obviously. Exactly. <laughs> and you also have done re- sex research, so that's the reason you're on this show. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. We're just capitalizing yes. on on the tagging along. But yeah. yes, absolutely. Dr. Sheena Sparling has done a lot of sex research. And we know each other from sex research conferences for, for quite some time when we were yeah. still grad students, right? Yeah. 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 We go way back. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so most of your research has been around sexual health decision making. Like how and when do people think I should be using a condom or I shouldn't be using a condom or this person might have an STI or not have an STI and Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. 
how did you end up studying this? Obviously, it's an important thing to study. Mm-hmm. We can kind of all probably see the value of that. But how did you end up in that area? I came at it from um, my background in cognitive and social psychology because I was really interested in how people make decisions because we're really bad at making decisions just as human beings. And I feel like it's so crazy how we think that we're really good at making decisions. <laughs> and when you judge somebody else's decisions, you're like, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that. Like, what is, <laughs> like, what is this? And so that kind of like got me into looking at decision making. And then sexual health decision making is something that's really interesting because it's not normal decision making. It's decision making under a lot of stress, under a lot of pressure, because you have like all these things happening. Mm-hmm. You have your emotional state and like worrying about what the other person's thinking and what they think about you and what other people are going to think about you. So you're juggling a lot more things and it's really intense decision making because mm-hmm. it also has to do with your health and health decision making is already complicated. really it's really complicated <laughs> and wonky like we were, I was just talking about this on the the plane with my partner about like how one of his clients doesn't want to get screening for prostate cancer because he's afraid what the results are going to be and I'm mm-hmm. like oh my god that's why people don't get tested for HIV and I'm like no just you have to get tested it's better to know yeah, yeah and you want to know as soon as possible but the fear is real and it yeah. is it is keeping a lot of people from taking action when it comes to these things yeah so did were you the first to dig into this kind of topic where there was there research similar to what you were doing there was a little bit of research that existed already. And one of my friends who who does decision-making research, like she got started before me, she was like, oh, check out these two papers. And I read the two papers and I was like, okay, those are neat, but I have a lot more questions. And they only used male samples or when they did try to use female samples, things didn't really work out. And I was like, oh, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe you're not doing a good job of trying to get women sexually aroused in your lab. And I was like, maybe I can come up with a better way to do that. So that was what I started trying to look into and trying to figure out. So you mentioned sexual aroused, sexually <laughs> aroused. And that's one of the, probably the most titillating aspects of, of the research that you've been doing that I want to talk about. And I want to start with that. So, you know, Sheena has done a lot of research on this, a bunch of different studies and on the different factors that affect how people make these decisions, including their mo- motivation relationship motivation, general motivational states, uh, things like how well they know their partner, and also how horny they are in the moment. (laughs) And we're going to start with the horniness piece (laughs) and see how horniness affects people's uh, decision making. First, give us a little background on on why horniness is a thing. Why why are we looking at sexual arousal in the context of decision making? We need a scientist to tell us that, Dr. Donna. Okay, <laughs> oh, I guess uh, she's here. Uh, hold on, actually, Joe, oh, why, no. don't you, <laughs> why don't you give us a little explanation for why we might be studying this? I think just because the the fact that the horniness is such a ambiguous state, there's no scale for it. Like you can be horny a little bit or a lot horny. It's it's very just sort of like a very, there. You just made a scale. Yeah, but, from a little horny to a lot horny. <laughs> but there is no actual scale out there, is there? There's like different ways of measuring it. Yeah. So the way I measured it was I had people just tell me like, oh, how sexual aroused are you from a scale? Like zero would be like. Like, no. not at all, like, visiting my grandparents, like, not at all sexually aroused. <laughs> okay. And then 10 would be like, oh, my God, like, the most sexually aroused I've ever been in my life, like, best case scenario. Okay. But other labs, like Meredith Chivers Lab in uh, in Queens, they have a bunch of different ways that they measure it. They have people, like, indicate, like, with an arrow box, and you can say, like, okay, this many, and this many arrows. Or, wow. like And, like, move kind of a, a lever or... Um, and then they also use like thermography, and so they measure the heat changes in your genitals to see. Wow! Like, are are you getting like filled with blood? Is it getting hot down there? <laughs> mm-hmm. So there are a lot of different ways to measure it, okay. and and it's no more or less vague than anything else that you're asked to self-report. Like, I don't know, how extroverted are you? Well, mm. uh, not at all. Medium, uh, a lot, okay. right? So the, the uh, wrong answer, Joe. That's right. not the reason we're studying <laughs> sexual arousal in okay. the context of decision making. Want to oh. give it another shot? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I guess nope. we did need the scientists yes. to explain that. Okay. Yes. Well, Shayna, give us a little background. <laughs> uh, so sexual arousal is kind of neat because people want to be sexually aroused. Like I, I have friends who research problems people have because they're not as sexually aroused as they want to be. And I research sexual arousal from like a totally different standpoint where I'm like, how dangerous is sexual arousal? Because mm-hmm. I want to know how much is it affecting your decision making? Because we have all these different drives 
we have like you know how when you're really hungry and you go grocery shopping you end up buying <laughs> more like food. not yeah. not good stuff yeah. and like a lot of food way like, it more not... than you need and yeah yeah like i'll go to the grocery store and i'm like i just need some broccoli to have with dinner tonight <laughs> and i come home with like a frozen pizza and some ice cream <laughs> and buns and some chips and like this hummus was on sale and like yep and so like sexual arousal isn't quite like hunger because you're not going to die if you don't have sex but it feels really urgent and it creates this kind of like sense of urgency and like sense of like, oh, my God, I have to do something about this. Like people joke about like feeling blue balls and stuff, but it, that's like kind of part of it of like feeling like, oh, man, like I really want to do this thing. Like I'm, And it, it kind of like shifts your cognitive perspective. It shifts your motivational state. It shifts a bunch of stuff. And I wanted to know like what? Like what's happening? Mm. Because people say – Oh, when I say like, hey, how come you didn't use a condom the last time you had sex? They're like, oh, because I was just so, so turned on. I was so yeah. caught up in the moment. And I was like, okay, but like, what's happening? Like, how is sexual arousal doing this? Why? Why is it doing this? Like, what mechanisms are being impacted? And so that's what I wanted to know. Like, when I tell people that I research how sexual arousal affects our decision making, they're like, well, yeah, duh. Like, it affects our decision making. Like, <laughs> they have the same reaction that you just had. Yeah, yeah. They're like, thanks, science. Like, thanks for nothing. <laughs> But I wanted to know how, like what, like what's going on, like more kind of more in detail, like what's happening. And so how do you research this? It's, it's, it's kind of fun to do this research in the, in the lab. And often <laughs> research studies are not super fun for the participants themselves. Your studies with sexual arousal are a little more fun. Yeah. T tell us how you do it. I've had participants leave and they're just like, okay, whatever. But I've had participants be like, this was the best I'd ever participated in. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yay. What do you do? Tell um, us a little bit about the method that you so use. For almost, actually for all of my sexual arousal studies, I, I use kind of the same basic methodology. So I have people come into the lab and I've decided in advance they've been assigned randomly to a condition. So they're either going to get to watch sexually arousing video clips or they're going to watch non-sexual video clips. And so my sexually arousing video clips are pulled from like... Is it porn or... Eh, Kind of. Um, I, I'm really selective with my porn because one of the other faculty members. All? Yeah. <laughs> you no, should be. No, not everyone. Some people, some people are. Um, but somebody, one of the people at, at my university did a lot of research on like how watching like certain kinds of porn can be very damaging to, to women. Right. And so I was like trying to be very selective. So I think I ended up with like a lot of clips from films that Erica Lust has made because she's won a lot of awards and she makes high quality stuff. And, uh, Love Erica Lust. Yes. Actually, we will add a link to Erica Lust's uh, videos at the bottom of our episode recap description. Okay. Yeah. Just in case ever... people can't just Google Erica Lust. No, <laughs> they they should go and use our link. Okay. It's an affiliate link. Okay. I have an affiliate link for Erica. All right. Good. All right. And she's great. And she's great. She really is. Um, she messaged me on Twitter, and I was like, oh, my gosh, you're famous. You're famous. I use your video clips in my research. <laughs> so people either get to watch those clips, or they get to watch clips of non-sexual male and female characters in drag. So I have like a clip from Wally. Oh, I have geez. a clip from like <laughs> Mad Men where people well where like he's talking to somebody in the car. I have a clip from Modern Family where like the the main heterosexual couple are like interacting in a bar. Um, and I have a clip from um, the like documentary TV series that Seymour Butts put out like many years ago. And I have him like just talking to his hairdresser while he's getting a haircut, talking about how he got wow. into porn. Because <laughs> I didn't want people who were in the control condition to be like, well, I didn't get anything sexy at all. Obviously, I was in the control condition. So this way they still got like sexual material without it being arousing material. Mm. I feel bad for those people because like <laughs> you want to sign up for this sex research site and then you're watching my modern family. I'm like, this is not what I signed <laughs> still, up for. <laughs> it's better than watching nature videos, which is what you you often get in some of these studies. You either yeah. get the sexually arousing arousing stuff or you get nature videos. Yeah. Richard Attenborough, something talking about birds. Sure, yeah. Okay. So this is better. I, I think yeah. Wally and Madman is better. <laughs> <Sure>. Yeah. <laughs> and and the thing was too, I didn't want people to come into the lab and be like, oh, I'm in a sex study or I'm in a sexual study and like I'm clearly in this condition. I didn't want it to bias people's responses. So I actually told people in advance that they were coming into a study to tell us about their reactions to different video clips oh, okay. and that I was going to compare male and female participant responses. And I said the clips might have be sexual in nature. And I so I didn't tell them like a bunch of you are going to watch sexually arousing videos clips uh, and, so, okay I didn't they want weren't expecting to be jerking off in the lab yeah okay at least right. i hope not at one point my supervisor was like should we put a box of tissue in the lab and i was like no i don't want to i don't want to encourage people hey, this wally video is so hot <laughs> that robot but that's very manipulative of you i guess i guess you kind of have to do that right yeah i was i was really worried that people because people can 
be really biased in what they expect is going to happen. And we see that when we do alcohol research, too. People will think that they, they'll behave a certain way when they're drunk, and then we can't get their, like, their true responses. Mm. So I was hoping this way I would get more realistic responding from them. From because both they, groups, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because people's expectations for what's going to happen can affect quite a bit what is going to happen, like how they're going to behave. So you want to get rid of that as much as possible. Okay. And so then after they watch either Family Guy, (laughs) no, not Family Guy, Modern uh, Family. family. (laughs) (laughs) So then what? After they watch Modern Family or Erica Lust sexy films, then what? Uh, Then I have them do kind of like a mini mood measure. And I use this as a manipulation check so I can just to make sure that people who are watching Erica Lust films are are getting more sex aroused than people who are watching like Wally and Modern Family. Um, so I, I have people, they tell me on a scale of like, so zero would be like not at all. And 10 would be like the most ever, how happy they are, how sad they are, how bored they are and how sexually aroused they are. So I kind of like tuck sexual arousal in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're like, but wait, I those, don't know. those people who watch the Wally video must be like, what the fuck is this lady <laughs> Why doing? Why am I supposed <laughs> to be sexually aroused? <laughs> totally, right? Totally. I'm not aroused by this at all. <laughs> right? What is she doing? Which is why you kind of have to tuck it in with some yeah. other things as yeah. opposed to just asking, right. okay, folks, now after you've watched Wally, <laughs> how sexually aroused are you? Wait, without getting off, off topic, did, were people aroused by the Wally video at no, all? No. All right. Good. No. <laughs> it, it got like, like super, super low ratings okay, all good. the time. All right. Good. Yeah. Uh, across the board, actually, when I compared the groups, like, always my sexual arousal. <laughs> group was like way more sexually aroused than, right. than my control group. Thank so goodness. it worked. It worked. Yeah. 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 So what you were yeah. trying to do happened. It I actually had to change out one of my control clips at one point because I used to use a clip from Flight of the Concords and I get like they're pretty cute and I guess people I was getting too high scores too high arousal ratings <laughs> for the Flight of the Concords. <laughs> yeah. So I, ha- I had to like I like take that New out. Zealand accent. I, it's going to turn me on a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad you found ones that work. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was a good choice. (laughs) And then you asked them what? How do you measure their sexual health decision making? I did a few different things. So the first part that I already told you about is the part that um, that I repeated across all the studies. And then the next part is the part that I changed. So sometimes I ask people to respond to different scenarios where I was like, okay, you're out on a date with this person. Things are going really well. Um, you want to have sex with them, but there's no condom. What are you going to do? Sometimes I had them play blackjack against my computer. Sometimes I had them um, tell me about their self-efficacy or their uh, I measured their motivational state. So I did a whole bunch of different things depending on what I was looking at in that particular study. Okay. So across these <laughs> studies, what did you find? How does being horny, being sexually aroused by watching Eric Ellis film, what does that do to people compared to watching Wally and Modern Family? Oh. It it messes up your health decision making. (laughs) Great. Great. How does he mess it up? (laughs) So across all the studies, um, my sexual arousal participants, they were way more likely to report lower condom use intentions when I gave them scenarios. So when you ask them, like, imagine you're on a date, you're going home, there's no condom. Yeah. Will you still have sex without a condom? They were much more likely to say, yep. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. And was it that on a scale? Was it yes, no, maybe? Or was it just a blanket yes I or no? I think I gave them like a nine-point scale so they oh, could okay. say I'll like, I'm pretty, pretty would want to, pretty sure. Okay. like Or like, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want to. Got it. And it was a big difference? Uh, it was a significant difference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, statistics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they were less likely to use a condom if they were aroused in that moment. Why? What was going on? So I did some more studies to try and look at why, how this is happening, what's going on. So I found that they are also scoring lower on my measure of self-control and on my measure of sexual self-restraint, which is kind of interesting. Define these for us, self-control and sexual self-restraint. Self-control is really interesting because it's something that we use all the time. It's it's basically like what makes you put on pants before you leave the house. Like it's what makes you like sit quietly on the subway, like line up right for your for coffee, like not skip the queue. You need self-control, but you also want to be able to relax self-control. And it's kind of neat that sexual arousal lowers your self-control because that means that if you're with a partner who you can trust and like things are going well, that means you can try fun things. You'll be more open to trying fun things that you might have been too reluctant to try before. You'd remove those pants that you put on before. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You'll be ready to remove your pants. You'll be ready to try out something cool that maybe you would have been too reserved um, to try before. Except that if you're with somebody that maybe you shouldn't put that much trust in and you've kind of fooled yourself into trusting somebody in a way that maybe you, you shouldn't have um, because you don't have enough information, then you are opening yourself up to risk of 
of assault or unwanted pregnancy yeah. or doing something that you don't really want to do. Yeah, yeah. Or sexually transmitted infections. Like, yeah. So it it's a double edged sword and it can be something that's really awesome and fun in your sexual relationships. But it's also something you have to watch out for. The fact that when you're in that state of arousal, your self-control diminishes. Yeah. And sexual self-restraint, isn't that the same thing? It's really similar. They like they correlated really strongly. Um, I guess self-control is just kind of more general, and sexual self-restraint is like self-control specifically for sex. Okay. Okay. And so it seems like when sexual arousal goes up, our ability to self-restrain when it comes to sex (laughs) stuff goes down, and part of that is forgoing condoms. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at some other things, too. Like, I looked at self-efficacy and sexual self-efficacy and condom use self-efficacy. Define that for listeners. So self-efficacy... And Joe, <laughs> yeah. Joe, making a face. Thing. Yeah, your, your yeah. little eyebrows yeah, yeah. together. Yeah. Um, so self-efficacy is your sense of how well you feel you can do stuff. General self-efficacy is generally like, do you feel like you're good at doing stuff in the world? And some people have really high self-efficacy and they're like, totally. Like, I know I how to put this. on my socks. I can <laughs> yeah. take the subway. Like, I know what I'm doing. And then sexual self-efficacy is very specific to sexual situations. Like, can you ask for something you do want in bed? Can you say no to something you don't want? Got it. Are you okay with buying condoms? Like that kind of thing. Can you ask for using condoms with a partner? What yeah. if the partner says, "I, how about not using a condom? How good are you at saying no? It's condom or yeah. you walk. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So self-efficacy wasn't, wasn't affected. So it doesn't it wasn't make, affected Yeah, so it doesn't arousal. make people feel like they can't do something, but maybe makes them feel like they don't want to. Mm, okay. And was there a difference with the sexes in, in that? Sometimes there's gender differences. Sometimes there's not. Uh, and there's always an overall effect. So always overall, like people who are sexually aroused are showing the effect. And then some, often it's stronger in men than in women, um, which is complicated. Yeah. So, so <laughs> women's self-control and sexual self, self-restraint self are less affected by being horny. I actually didn't have an effect of gender on those. Oh, interesting. So just, just on the intentions to, use, to yeah. use condoms. Okay, interesting. But both genders are affected yes. by, yeah. by being horny. We all lose our heads. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. I know the, the, the lay person explanation of that is, well, all the blood left the brain <laughs> and went <laughs> down into the, veg- yeah. into, into the genitals. And that's why you can't think straight. <laughs> is that what's happening? I mean, I, I haven't, you know, I really need to connect with the people at Queens and then we can, we can ch- test Who that. Who do the, the, yeah. Yeah. Then they'll be able to tell me like, yes, now that there's a lot of blood down there, let's check the decision making. <laughs> so we don't know the physical reason why we, why this is happening, right? No, no. Okay. I, I haven't had the facilities to check that. Okay. Yeah. So this though, sort of makes sense in more generally, even though not a lot of research has existed uh, on sexual arousal specifically, there has been a ton of research on cold versus hot emotional states that Mm -hmm. people make very different decisions when they're not aroused. And I'm using aroused very generally here when they're sort of calm and nothing particularly is happening. And then they make very different decisions when they are in these highly kind of uh, emotionally aroused states, whether that's, as you were talking about earlier, hunger or whether they're emotionally upset because of something or some other excited. Yeah. So when we're in that in those hot states, we make different decisions. How how does this kind of map onto how did the sexual arousal stuff map onto this more general research of hot versus cold states? So I also checked that out with my blackjack study where I had people think they were playing blackjack against my computer. Um, but really, the game was totally rigged. I, I had set it up in advance so that I would know exactly what was going to happen. And I wanted to see what people would do if I gave them ambiguous hands playing blackjack. So with blackjack, you're you're trying to get a score as close to 21 as possible without busting, and you're trying to beat the dealer. So I didn't sh- let them see what the dealer's hand was so I could have more control. Um, that's so you didn't show them what, the one card? You, like you're supposed to show they, them blackjack? You, yeah, they could only see, they could see their cards. But not any of the dealer's cards. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they see their, only their two cards, and they had to decide, are they going to hit or stay? And I wanted to know, if people were sexually aroused, what are they going to do if they get a 16 or a 17? And for the people who have absolutely no idea what you two just had a conversation yeah. about, <laughs> uh, this is basically measuring how risky their decisions were, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah, because you, you would hit it on a certain card depending on what the dealer is showing on their one card. Okay. So, for example, uh, the dealer is showing a three, and your two cards come out, and you get 13. 
you would stay on 13 because you want the dealer to bust out. Sure. Does that I, make any sense? No. Sort of, not really. Because you, because say it, it, it's a, but it, no, it does not have to make sense to me. No, but, All I need to know is whether they're taking a risk but, or not. But yeah, no, but, but basically you're taking a risk, a knowledgeable risk. You're, you're playing by the book, as they say. Mm-hmm. But in this study, there is no book involved because you're just going by what your hand is. But people vary quite a bit in how risk prone or risk averse mm-hmm. they are, yeah. right? For some people, taking, taking a risk is very anxiety provoking. Yeah. And for other people, it's actually kind of exciting to take yeah. that risk. And so... Yeah, uh, obviously that there are going to be individual differences in that regard, but then also the sexual arousal can make that change yeah. for people. So for this study, I had no effective gender, so it didn't matter if you were uh, male or female identifying. You, so if you were sexually aroused, you were you're hitting on sixteen and seventeen. Wow, <laughs> you were taking that risk. You're, you're taking much that more risk. likely to take a risk. Yeah, yeah. So. The sexual arousal basically had a more general risk take increase of risk taking mm-hmm. effect. It wasn't just that people were more likely to say yes to condomless sex; mm-hmm. they were also more likely to take a risk on a on a card, a game. card game. Yeah. So those casinos are doing a good job by having like attractive waiters and waitresses walking around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. That's why they're that attractive. <laughs> I think that they should like if they really want to capitalize on this, they should really start having their dealers be like very very attractive people yeah. to like really throw everyone's game a lot of casinos are starting to do that are they so, yes they oh really like very good looking are they also wearing skimpy clothes they're wearing you know they're wearing like bustiers and, and such <laughs> yeah. so they've caught so on they've to they've been your, reading your research yeah. right now. Well, the study came out in 2016 so there's a chance it's just happening <laughs> so, so the people who watch Wally and Modern Family they were staying on 16 they were more likely to stay wow. yeah that's funny yeah, make some decisions about what you watch before you head down to the casino floor. <laughs> <laughs> and do not look at the sexy dealer. Yeah. Do not look at the sexy or go dealer. Go to the table. Yeah, go to the table. You're not attracted to the dealer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to have a more uh, kind of, uh, or, or if, if you want to take a less risky approach, mm-hmm. yeah. If you want to take a riskier approach, yeah. then by all means, ogle that. Yeah, maybe it went big. <laughs> That's I don't true. know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have watched uh, one of my colleagues like sit down to play blackjack. So one year the the Canadian Sex Research Conference was in a casino. Nice. <laughs> what? And so we, I hadn't played blackjack before, but I had already like published this research, and I was like, I have to play blackjack now. <laughs> yeah, obviously. So, so we went and otherwise played, you're a fraud, right? <laughs> I, I was like, I have to, and then I was like, I I can't do. We can't do poorly now because I've made a blackjack study. Like this look real bad. Um, and but I watched one of my colleagues like lose two hundred dollars on like three hands. Oh, easily. And then and then later met up with them and they they were up like four hundred dollars and so they cashed out and they're like let's go have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. They can go back and forth. <laughs> and, and this kind of maps on even more broadly to other hot states, not just sexual sexual arousal, but how does hot states of other kinds affect decision making? Are they also more likely to make us kind of more risky or less risk averse? Um, what I know about the the other kind of hot states literature is they don't see a lot of cross-domain stuff. So, like, hungry people will make bad choices grocery shopping but won't make mistakes on their taxes. Mm. Um, so so this blackjack study was kind of unique because it's, it's a decision-making impact that's kind of crossing domains. Luckily, like, nobody serious has found out about it yet and, and like, asked me, <laughs> like, what's going on with that because I don't know and I don't have the resources to do sexual arousal research anymore, but... <laughs> mm. That's really interesting. If, if some of these other states are kind of more specific to the context uh, that, that is creating that, that hot state mm-hmm. and sexual arousal has this universal yeah. kind of risk-increasing effect... Could you do that, Shana? Maybe like the next study be like, are right, you going to watch this porno and then you're going to go to Stop and Shop? <laughs> Would that affect the, what, what they're what buying? You buy yeah. How much ice cream you get? <laughs> I I would love that study. That'd be great. I'll just see like how much how much ice cream they like put in their bowl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't you don't do that research anymore? No, I uh, I have to take a break from it. <laughs> you got just way too aroused. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's so much work to collect the data because yeah. people have to come into the lab and I have to get them set up at a computer terminal. And uh, and it's, yeah, it's like, it's really, really time consuming. So I'm waiting till I get a faculty position and then, then I'll... Well, we didn't ask. How many people were involved in this study with watching the videos? Oh, hundreds. Oh, hundreds. Hundreds and hundreds. Of yeah, we're talking about a few different studies. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, okay, let's transition out of the sexual arousal piece and, and talk about some of the other things that you've looked at that can affect 
how and when people make these decisions. One of the studies, and I remember you presenting this when uh, <laughs> when you first presented it at one of the conferences, was about partner familiarity. And given my interest in casual sex and, and how people navigate that space, I was really excited to see it. So what you looked at in that one was... So th these were all new partners that they were supposedly going to have sex with. And then you varied whether this was someone that they sort of knew before or they didn't know. It mm -hmm. was a complete stranger versus someone that they had sort of seen around, right? Yeah. Is that how that worked? Yeah. And that's kind of because I was really interested in how people make decisions about like new people that they're having sex with, but not necessarily people they don't know. Because you like you might know somebody for several years from like school or work or they're like your roommates, friends. And that's not the same as somebody that you've just swiped right on and you're meeting or like you've just met at a party. They're so they're both new sex partners, but they're you, you they're know both first more. time sex partners. Yeah, they're yeah. both yeah, they're both first time sex partners, but you you might feel like you know one more than you know the other. Although how often do you talk about sexual health with right. like your roommates' friends or right. your classmates like never? Yeah, no. yeah, about never. Yeah, so what's your number? I know we're just having coffee for the first time, right? Not yeah, that. when was the last time you got an STI test? Yeah. What were your results? How's yeah. it going? <laughs> yeah, but we do get lulled into this false sense of security mm -hmm. by the fact that we've seen this person around, that they're friends with our friends or all of these things because they're familiar. You might see them as less risky, right? Was that yeah. the hypothesis? Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, just because I know what somebody likes to order on their pizza doesn't mean I know like what was on their last STI test result. Right. Or how often they use condoms right. when yeah. they have sex with or how many partners, partners had, or how yeah. many partners they've yeah. had. Exactly. But if I eat pizza with you all the time, I might feel like I know you. I might feel like, and we have this kind of bias where people that we like, we feel like they're like us. And we also like people who we see as being like us. And we also do a lot of guessing. Like this is this is where like studying decision making gets like super crazy and interesting because we really like to guess things. We don't want to know things. So people <laughs> like to guess like, well, I don't feel like I have an SDI and I feel like you're just like me. And if I don't feel like I have an SDI, then you probably don't have one either. So yeah, perfect logic. There is yeah. no fault to that logic whatsoever. Yeah, we're, we're messy. We're like, we're not good at doing things. <laughs> And so in this study, how did you study that? So did you I, have people read different kind of stories around who this potential person they would be hooking up with is? Yeah, yeah. so I, I was worried if I asked people to tell me about people that they know, that they would be way too messy. So I had them read like short, short vignettes about hypothetical people. And so I gave them like a little bit of information like, oh, this is your uh, best friend's roommate. Um, or like, oh, this is somebody you've had in class. You've been in the same class. You've worked on a project together. Or this is somebody you've just met at a club. Um, so try and have people compare how trustworthy, how familiar people feel, how likely that person is to have an STI, how willing they would be to have sex with them without a condom, and like how much they want to be in a relationship with people. And, and what'd you find? <laughs> <laughs> so when I gave them partners that had this like kind of acquaintance thing, like where, where it was like, oh, this is like somebody you've known from class for a while, they rated those partners as like feeling way more familiar, but also as being like, way more interested as having them as uh, romantic partners or sexual partners. They thought they were way lower risk for SDI transmission. They, yeah, like they were way more willing to have condomless sex with those people. And compared that, to the complete stranger they just met at a bar. Yeah, but I didn't give them any information in either case that would actually help you make an informed decision about having condomless sex with those people. Wow. So. Yeah, I was like, oh, wow. I can't believe how well this worked. Yeah. Well, it's almost, we all, we all kind of get lulled, even if just not sex, but we're all, we all get lulled into a sort of a safety network, especially if we're out with friends. We're like, oh, this this seems whatever we're doing with these friends, whether it's sex or drinking or that, I feel safe. They wouldn't, you know, drug me. They wouldn't take advantage mm -hmm. of me. So mm -hmm. I think we're all lulled into this false sense of security in just about any kind of environment. Yeah. And we do know from other research that people are less likely to use a condom with people that they that they know or even people that they like a lot. Right, that they like a lot, yeah. So the, that motivation of how you feel towards this person mm -hmm. uh, can can affect, and we're, we actually have a study on that, so we'll get to that. <laughs> but, but at the same time, the greatest likelihood of contracting an STI is not from a brand new partner or a one-time partner. It's usually from someone you've had sex with a few times because it can often take a few times of having sex with someone who has an SDI in order to get it. You don't get it the first time you have sex with them always, even though people think it's a one-to-one -one kind of thing that if someone has, let's say, chlamydia and you have sex with them, you are 100% likely to get it. 
that's not the case. Really? Yeah. No, wait. Shh. Always use a condom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, come on. Yeah. People have to have accurate information. Yeah. No, that's not the case. And with some things like HIV, for example, it's actually quite difficult to get it, even if you're having unprotected sex, say vaginal sex. It's only one in like a thousand or something like that chance so that the risk is a it. lot lower if than if you're having anal sex for example right right like yeah. in comparison right but if you're if you're the person with the penis putting it into a vagina the oh, penis yeah. owner has lower risk totally. than the vagina owner totally but it's still it's not one to one it's like mm-hmm. one in a thousand or one in 600 cases right so the chances of you getting something from someone who has say hiv or or chlamydia or anything is much higher if you have repeated sex with that person than if you just have sex once. Did that just blow your mind, Joe? Yeah, no, well, no. <laughs> actually, it kind of did because I think we're sort of, I don't want to say brainwashed, but if we're sort of like led to believe if you have un- unprotected sex with anyone and if they have some sort of STI, that you'll automatically get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. That's that's not something we talk about very often. And not that it's a horrible thing, but it's just in a way, nope. it's, sort, it's sort of like the, what we're all been led to believe. Shana's not too happy that we're telling no. people this. No, it's okay. She's like, no, no, I'm keep like, them in fear. Yeah. No, no well, I'm, I'm, that's like fear-based sex education causes a lot of problems. Yes. And yeah. it raises, brings up like a lot of stigma for people who do get, end up with an STI infection because even something that's, I mean, it's one thing to have a, a chronic STI, like people, ex, those people experience a lot of stigma and, and a lot of unfair stigma um, for a chronic infection that they can control. But people who have an STI infection that they can get rid of, like you can take antibiotics and get rid of your chlamydia, yeah. but yeah. people still feel like, oh, like now I'm, I'm like damaged goods, which is yeah. really unfair. Dirty and yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's so unfair. And seriously, like these things are so easy to treat for the most part. Chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, those, those things, you take a couple of pills or a shot and yeah. it's over it's gone done as long as you go get tested and the testing is the key part because you don't right. want to sit around with the chlamydia infection you don't right. know about exactly testing is definitely like it's, you need a two-pronged approach like testing and economy use. like those are the two things that are gonna keep your sexual health healthy healthy and, and your partner's sexual yeah. health healthy yeah. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> right right um yeah so so that's really interesting people were a lot more likely to be okay with condomless sex if they felt they knew this person, even though it was the first time they were having sex with. And they also rated them as less likely to have an STI, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That blew me away. Okay. What else? What else? You've looked at relationship motivation mm-hmm. and you mentioned kind of liking and, and all that. Tell us about th- those findings. Yeah. I was really interested in looking at things like partner familiarity and relationship motivation because when I'm looking at sexual arousal, it's just like one person's decision making like all by themselves. But when you're actually have deciding about having sex with somebody, there's two people there. And that brings up a lot of extra messy stuff. Or like, more. More than two people. Could be. Or yeah. more than yeah. two people. <laughs> Several people. <laughs> However many, more than one person. As long yeah. as there's more than one person. <laughs> and I don't know if it gets exponentially more challenging, but like definitely, yeah, like it's, yeah. Adds complexity, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely adds complexity because then you have like, how well do I feel like I know this person? But also like, how much do I like this person? How much do I want to be in a relationship with this person? What does asking to use a condom, what does asking to use a condom mean for that person? Like, if are they going to think now that I think they're risky or that I think I'm risky? risky. Yeah. Like, what am I signaling to them? Right. So if you say want something more serious with this person, then you want to manage those those perceptions that that person mm-hmm. has of you. You you don't necessarily want to appear like you're too slutty or too risky and push them away that way, or you don't want to make them feel like you think they're risky or slutty. And, yeah. Uh-huh. And meanwhile, you're horny at this point. So you're trying- uh, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 You're horny. That does not <laughs> make things easier you're at all. You're unpacking all this information while you're like, you're, mm-hmm. all the blood's rushing to your dick. Mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> and what happens? Oh, so messy. Uh, so that's actually one of the things I looked at in my dissertation because I was like, okay, let's put these three things together. So I put them together, like so sexual arousal and familiar versus unfamiliar partner types and the relationship motivation thing. And I found that... With the relationship motivation being... So wanting how, versus not wanting to be in a relationship yeah, with them. Like basically, like how bad somebody wants to pursue or establish or uh, like a long term relationship, like a potential with partner. Yeah. Okay. So like not so uh, people are really good about practicing good sexual safety with a partner that they're like, this is for sure a one night stand. People are great at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. If people think, oh, you know, all this casual sex, all, all this one night stand kind of sex is is uh, really unsafe and really risky. But when you look at 
condom use rates for one night stands, that's really high. It's yeah. something yeah. like 80%, 90%, depending on what your population is. Yeah. 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 It's, it's when you get into these little less casual versions yeah. of sexual partners that you exactly. see lower uh, condom use. Exactly. So it's people who really want to be in a relationship with somebody, they're going to be way more worried about what that person thinks and and what asking for a condom means to those people. And they're going to be really concerned about making sure that person always thinks that everything's great and that they're great and that the sex <laughs> can be great and the relationships can be great. And like, let's please get married. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So you put all three things together. Put all three things together. And what you find? Um, I found that uh, overall people were way more risky with the um, with the more familiar partner types. So like being with somebody that you feel like you know, even if it's in a hypothetical situation, people are like, yeah, sure, condomless sex, no big deal. Um, and and then it got really messy when I, when I started bringing in the sexual arousal and the relationship motivation stuff because I ended up getting all of these interactions between the variables and it got really crazy. What do you mean by that? So overall, it was really in women where I found interesting stuff happening. So in women who were with a more familiar partner, they if they were also high in relationship motivation and sexually aroused, they were way more willing to have uh, condomless sex with those partners. Hmm. But if they were not sexually aroused, they were much less willing. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> it was super messy. I had lines going all over the place. Um, but yeah. There's just too many variables uh, you try to combine all together. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... And in, in men, there were no... Uh, how, did, it, how did relationship motivation per se affect men? Overall, guys who had high relationship motivation, they were really sensitive to uh, the kinds of signals that their partners were sending out. So in, uh, in one of my studies where I was looking at relationship motivation, when I presented guys with a, a female partner or a male partner, um, depending on their orientation, when I presented guys with a partner who didn't want to use a condom, that freaked them out. Because mm. when, I a- and I, when I looked at their answers to my question, when I asked them, like, how much do you think that person wants to use a condom with you tonight? They all had really high expectations that that person would want to use a condom. So when I later said, like, oh, that person doesn't want to use a condom with you, they were like, what? Mm. Like, I, I, I think that, that freaked them out. And I think they took that as a huge risk cue. But we didn't see that in women. And I think it's because women expect that their male partners don't want to use a condom. So when I gave them a partner who was like, eh, I don't really want to use a condom, they're like, that's normal. So they didn't see that as a risk cue. Interesting. But the guys who wanted to date someone. That was a like, huge risk cue. If she doesn't want to use a condom, then she's probably really, really risky. Right. Guessing, and I yeah. don't want to date her. Yeah. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah. Which is you're building your own narrative because you don't know if that person is super monogamous and has been in super long-term relationships. Totally. You're, you're sort of just imposing that, yeah. the, the fact that she's willing to do that on a, whatever the first or second date. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And we love to do that. Yes. Just as humans. <laughs> yeah. Yes, to build narratives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I Especially. do that on the subway all the time. <laughs> Are you one of those people who kind of looks around and is like, okay, let's see if I can build a whole story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Look at that person's shoes. Those look like exciting shoes. <laughs> Well, from you doing this research, do you feel like, why do you think the familiarity was so important? Like, just like your anecdotal, like what you feel about the fact of like, say it's like your roommate's cousin. Oh, my roommate's cool. So the cousin's got to be. Why, why do yeah. why do people do that? Why do you think that? I think we buy into this idea of people having like these social ties, meaning something more than they actually mean. And we just like to see patterns and connections where they don't always exist, which is why people like lose their shirts gambling, because we're looking for patterns where there's not patterns. And I think this is this is just one of those patterns that we're trying to we're trying to see, like, I like this person and this person is friends with that person. So this person, this person would never do something. This person would never be filthy and dirty and have yeah. an STI. <laughs> so obviously this this other person is probably fine. And, and it, I think it comes back to a lot of like the stigma that we have. And I think that. Part of the way that we do sex ed where we're like, oh, look at these horrible sores. Like, we think we're going to be so good at identifying somebody who has an SDI. We think we're going to notice them walking down the street yeah. like, that person has herpes. Like, yeah. I just know it by their face. Like, and you can't tell. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so I think, like, the familiarity kind of, like, is t- tapping into, like, all those things of, of what our expectations are about people and trying to see patterns and it kind of messing us up. And, I mean, it also kind of ties into... Uh, shortcuts that we use to help us make decisions because we use a lot of shortcuts because our lives are very complicated and we have a lot of stuff going on and so we kind of have these these decision making shortcuts that we call heuristics and one of them is if i know this person they're probably safe 
if I trust this person, they're probably safe is another one. Or if we're monogamous, then it's probably safe mm. is another one. So we have all these these heuristics, these decision-making shortcuts that we use to make decisions about our sexual health that sometimes help us and sometimes mess us up. Yeah, I mean, and we we need, and we have heuristics for everything and anything, yeah. not just not just, I was just sexual say, stuff. For, yeah. yeah, for her job. Oh, that guy, yeah. that guy, he, he's friends with my friend Bob, so that means I could go work for mm-hmm. him because Bob's a nice guy. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are helpful because if we treated every single new person or every single new experience as brand new without us knowing anything about it, if we didn't generalize to this new experience from something else that was similar mm. or, uh, you know, make these kinds of decisions, then mm-hmm. it will be very difficult to get through the day. Yes. Uh, everything will be yeah. brand new. And we'll we be never confused. leave the house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll never leave the house. We might leave the house because the house is familiar. <laughs> but then as soon as we open the door and new things pop up, yeah. then, yeah, it would be paralyzed. And so yeah. it, we as humans have to have these heuristics, yeah, but they can some, sometimes lead us astray and, and take us toward greater risk. Mm-hmm. So overall, looking at all of these studies that you've done and all of these factors that you've identified as affecting people's willingness to use a condom or willingness to forgo condoms, with especially with new partners when the risks might be uh, higher, what are some take-home messages? How, how do we think about some of these findings in the sense that they can help us make better, smarter decisions about sexual health? Uh, I think the the biggest and most important take-home message is has to do with realizing and remembering about hot and cold cognition and remembering that you're not going to be good at making decisions in a sexually arousing situation, just like trust. Like, you're not going to make a good decision. It's it's going to be challenging. And leave fewer things up to chance. And so that means, mm-hmm. like, talking about condom use with somebody in advance. Or it means um, making sure that you have bought condoms way in advance. Like, don't try and buy it, like, at when you're on the way home, like, hooking mm-hmm. up from the bar. Like, <laughs> get them, like, have them have in your them bedside ready. table. Have them ready. Mm-hmm. Like, have those things ready. Have those conversations way in advance. And that's one of the cool things about online dating is you can text somebody and that takes a lot of the, like, scary pressure off and you can be like, hey, like, let's just do this. Or, like, uh, if you've seen Sex Education, how she's like, I'll bring the condoms, you bring the lube, let's do this. <laughs> like, uh, You can negotiate things ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, that's a, it's a good point about having things easily accessible like sometimes people will have condoms in the house but they'll be i don't know in the bathroom or in mm-hmm. some some drawer in that shoe box or something yeah <laughs> where you have to get out of the bed and then go and open and unlock and whatnot and like that's yeah yeah you want to have them easily accessible yeah, yeah. whether bed stand uh, nightstand or headboard yeah. <laughs> i don't know and, and it's funny we talked about this before but like it's almost like the poly and king community are, are way advanced when it comes to oh, stuff yeah. because yeah. Th- there, there's these pre-negotiations about protocols whereas a lot in the you know this the straight regular, uh, mm-hmm. you know man on woman man on man, it's it's that stuff's never discussed before very often it isn't yeah yeah, oh. yeah we're doing a bad job monogamous <laughs> are doing a bad job <laughs> Right. So that's as far as the sexual arousal goes that know that you are going to lose your head yeah. when you're when you're horny and aroused. And so yeah. have the condom use pre-negotiated, mm-hmm. have the condoms and lube available. Part of it is is like trying to get rid of some of the heuristics that you have that aren't helping you, like not having it be like, oh, if I like this person, they're probably safe. Have it be yeah, like right. if we've talked about testing together, then right. it's fine. And like start normalizing those things, like have those conversations with your partner. And if you're have hooking up with somebody who's like, oh, you want to talk about like sexual history? Like, like don't. That's so not sexy. Yeah, or yeah whatever. like that's that's cool. Like if you're yeah. texting with somebody and you're like, we're going to use a condom, right? And they're like, ha, no. <laughs> Just, then you're like, don't don't get into that situation. Definitely if they say, ha, ha, no. <laughs> definitely say no to that person. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you're someone who's okay with that level of risk. Yeah. That's another thing that I always like that's to talk true. about when we talk about, you know, what should your safer sex protocol mm-hmm. be? We all have very different levels of comfort with risk, and mm-hmm. some people are okay with having condomless sex, even with people that they don't know or they haven't even had those kinds of conversations with. And as long as you're both on the same page and you're okay with dealing with whatever consequences happen, then and you're going and getting tested. I guess that's the other thing. Like, yeah. if you don't want to do like talking about condoms in advance, then like take care of yourself and go and get tested regularly. Regularly, yeah. All right, and you brought up a point, uh, Shana, about the uh, the part with the romanticizing, taking away the romance of if you're talking about this before. 
Uh, what was what, what your argument to people like that? Like, I really don't want to talk about that on the date. I'm feeling like it's going to kill the mood. What, what's the argument to that? Talk about it earlier than the date. Yeah. Then, then you kind of you you can have you can kind of relax and let your self control be be influenced by sexual arousal because you're like, oh, we talked about it this way in advance. Mm. We talked about this way in advance, mm. and I'm comfortable with with whatever's going to happen. Um, I think that's the best way to get yeah. around it um, so that you're not like if you talk about it way in advance or you ha- you know, like I got caught in the loop back at my place and we're heading back to my place after this, then like you don't have to worry about ruining the mood of the date. And if the mood of the date is ruined by you, like bringing out condoms, then like that wasn't a very good date or very, yeah, yeah, yeah I don't know, strong date anyway. <laughs> like yeah. well, any date can recover from having sure. a a five minute conversation yeah. around sexual history. Yeah. And if you change your perspective so that talking about sexual history is like part of your like preamble to sex, it's part of your like digital foreplay of like we're like this is a signal to your partner instead of like a signal to your partner that like you're you're like sketchy or you think they're sketchy, that you you're like this hookup's happening. Like, let's talk about the stuff we need to do to prepare this hookup. Like, what flavor of condoms do you like? Like, what kind of, what scent of lube? Like, should I get the heating or the cooling time? Like, oh, don't get the heating. Do you like silicone or water-based? Yeah. Uh, Are you allergic to latex? mm -hmm. Like, if so, like, I can get some lambskin, like, yeah, like changing that perspective because people are like, oh, it's going to be so gross to talk about that stuff. It's going to be so awkward. But instead, like, how about it's sexy because you're talking about sex stuff and like, Clearly, a hookup's going to happen. Right. That's that awesome. is sexy. Yeah. In itself. <laughs> so do it before the appetizer, not between the appetizer and the main course, I right? I think so. Okay. Good. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Although, I mean, you can negotiate it at any time. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Uh, this is making me think of a, of a hookup that I had a few weeks ago. First date ever. We had barely had much conversation prior to, to, the, to the date. It was a, it was a hinge uh, match. And we met, and it was it was instant. Like it's one of those dates when you know immediately that this is going to happen, that there's so much chemistry and it's, it's, it's so good. We started with this like super close, intimate hug that just went on and on and on and on and on and on. <laughs> and we went back to his place, had sex with a condom. And then we were both like, fuck, I really want to have sex without a condom. <laughs> we're like, okay, let's talk about it. So we had a conversation. We showed each other our most recent test results. Both were very recent. Funny, we used the exact same doctor's office. That's That's (laughs) so romantic. I know. When he pulled out and he he opens the app, I'm like, oh my God, one medical. Which office do you go to? (laughs) I go to the 14, you know, whatever. I'm getting so turned on right now. It was was pretty hilarious. Yeah, and then we kind of had that, okay, showed the results, had the conversation, okay, who and how many people and what kind of sex have you had condomless sex with with anyone since then? Whatever, and we were both like, okay, we 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 feel comfortable having unprotected sex, That's and then awesome. we kept having sex. We had like three more sessions of that that same night and morning that were without a condom, but we both felt very comfortable doing that because we had had this. Yeah, you put in the work. Yeah, we had this conversation and shared results and all of those things in the middle of it, right? Mm. In, in between amazing. session one and session two yes. is when that happened. So it was pretty damn good. <laughs> so Jana is an expert at decision making. Yes. <laughs> and other things, apparently. <laughs> Everyone should just take classes with Jana. Because <laughs> she's Thank the Thank you. <laughs> I try. I'm not always this good, but I think experience certainly mm-hmm has a lot to do with it and being comfortable having these conversations and not thinking that it's going to ruin the mood because it yeah. doesn't have to like the mood i think this is a great example of of that the mood was so good yeah the, the five minutes that we spend doing this and kind of laughing about the same office doctor's office that we're using that that did not ruin the mood at all yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it takes confidence yeah i think that's my wish for people is to have like have more confidence like look after yourself and have confidence in yourself yeah, but don't expect to make good decisions necessarily. Well, this one over here is loaded with rest. confidence. So don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> she is not afraid to have any kind of conversations. No, no, not at all. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end yeah. uh, to end this conversation on. Now, Shana, when you arrive, is it okay if I text you to make sure that you got home? Okay. Because Dr. Jana, as w- as open as she is talking about sex, she doesn't like when people ask her to text when she gets home to somewhere. Do you, okay, yeah, do you like that? Do you like when people, kind of sort of random people that, I don't know, you went out on a date or you, 
whatever you were somewhere and they're like text me to let me know you got home okay i think How do you sweet. feel it you makes me feel sweet? like i'm part of a it makes me feel like i'm part of a community that looks after each other like friends will do that right and i i don't know i like that i feel like it makes me feel like i'm part of a community that cares about its members okay i'm the odd man out <laughs> right, fine, that's because you feel patronized yeah i totally yeah. feel patronized exactly you, you don't feel patronized yeah. i'm from a socialist country <laughs> I'm from a socialist country too. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I grew up in socialism, and, and, and until I, well, there was no more socialism. Yeah. But <laughs> See, I said it earlier. They broke the mold when they made Yana Brankalova over here. There's only there's only one of those. There's only one of those is going to bring out her STI test and show the doctor right in front of you. Oh like, my god, only, I love that. There's only one of those. I, that's why I want everyone to do that though. I love that. <laughs> do that and also check in with the person if you're traveling to make sure that they got there safe. Yeah, no. yeah let's all be part of a global community <laughs> yeah. and look people after get, each other. People can go, get home safe on their own. I don't need you to worry about them. Okay, bye. <laughs> all right, Shane, so when you get back to Toronto, Texas, make sure you got there, okay? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Shane Sparling, thanks for being on the Science of Sex podcast. Thanks for having me. That was fun. You know, these Canadians, they're so nice. <laughs> It, have we spoken to pretty much half half of the guests from Canada? It, I know there are a lot of like Canadians, it. but there is a lot of sex research in Canada because, well, because Canadians are just sexy and kinky in general, <laughs> right? Yeah, sure, that's what it is. <laughs> sure. No, but we've talked about about that that there is more funding for sex research in some ways, more openness around that. It's often easier to get sex studies through the ethics board committees at universities. Mm -hmm. There's not as much taboo around that subject. So yeah, there's a very big contingent of sex researchers in Canada. Cool. Well, Dr. Jana, that wraps up episode number 59 of the Science Sex Podcast. If you have any questions about this episode or you missed out on a couple things that we mentioned, we put full episode recaps for every episode. And so if there was something you missed, you could look it up. If you want to contact our guests, all that's there on the website. And if you want to read the studies that we talk about on the show with our guests, the links to those are on our episode recaps as well. And if you'd like to support the work that we do here, go to our patreon.com slash Jana page and throw us a few bucks. Yeah, because unlike Canada, where they get all this funding on sex studies, <laughs> we, we get zero funding here in the United States. So that's a good way to do that. And one more thing. Squirting. We haven't talked about squirting in a long time. Really? I feel like it's only been a few weeks. What about squirting? I, just a quick reminder for the people who haven't yet taken our squirting survey yeah. to go and do that. Squirtingsurvey.com. No matter what your gender or sexuality or experience with squirting is, go and take the survey and then share it with all your friends. And how do they get the link to that? Squirtingsurvey.com. It also will be on our episode recap. Very nice. Dr. Jana, you know, I will say that squirting episode we haven't talked about in a while was life-changing for a lot of people, which, you know, I hate to like, you <laughs> It know, was. To like we were getting up. these these great messages from, from folks saying, oh my God. Yes, yeah, so we had that one said that she had never squirted in her life and after mm -hmm. listening to the episode, got together with her partner and mm -hmm. next thing you know... Waterworks. Yes, indeed. I'm so happy. <laughs> we're changing lives one squirt at a time, Dr. Did you Jana. ever think you were going to be changing lives in this way, Joe? Yes, Dr. John. When I was a nine-year-old boy growing up in Jersey <laughs> City, I was like, one day I'm going to talk about squirting on a podcast, even though podcasts didn't even exist then. But uh, Dr. John, it's always fun talking to you, and I will see you in a, back here in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, go to thescienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod, and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.